Really, in terms of climate change, I think that uh, nuclear energy, it's not the only part of the solution. Certainly other dispatchable renewables like hydro have an important role to play, but I think it needs to be the keystone, the, the kind of backbone of our decarbonization response. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm going to be continuing our discussion on nuclear energy and I'm going to be interviewing an expert uh, who's also a physician and who's also pro-nuclear energy. So we're going to get uh, maybe the goods from a well-informed uh, doctor about exactly uh, the risks and the benefits of nuclear power for society. Now, as always, if you enjoy this content, please remember to hit like and I'd love to hear any of your comments. Uh, my Facebook group is going to be opening soon. It's The Rational View and we're going to have discussion of podcasts, feedback from viewers. Hopefully we can talk about your thoughts and your feedback and what you'd like to hear on the podcast. Chris Kiefer is an emergency physician, medical simulation educator, nuclear energy advocate, and podcaster. He's the medical director of EM Deliberate Practice, the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy, and the director of Doctors for Nuclear Energy, and the host of the Decouple podcast. Dr. Kiefer, welcome to The Rational View. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it very much. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? Medical simulation educator sounds quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. She's um, where to start, really. Um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a medical doctor. Um, I've been, I guess I've been an activist most of my life uh, for one cause or another. Um, I'd settled mostly in on uh, Indigenous issues um, and refugee health. Um, I, I set up a clinic um, in Simcoe County, which is an area um, in southern Ontario with a, a large agricultural base um, where a lot of Mexican and Jamaican workers come in. I set up a clinic down there, kind of specialized to, to work on, on their needs. I've always been passionate about um, fighting for the underdog um, and trying to, I guess, kind of tailor my skills um, and you know my resources and, and put them where I can make the biggest effort. So sort of trying to identify the most urgent problem, who's most in need, and then how can I put my skills to, to use? So I, I'm fluent in Spanish, so this migrant worker clinic was one example. Um, where I could communicate with, uh, you know, the largely Mexican patient population. In terms of uh, medical simulation, it's a really exciting field um, and a really kind of potent um, learning tool. Um, so something I'm, I'm really passionate about, one of my sort of key Myers-Briggs personality drivers is um, I take a huge amount of pleasure out of um, watching people kind of reach their full potential. And, and as an educator, you know, you can give lectures and give talks, but what I do is um, within within something called like a simulation laboratory, even, you know, within the emergency department where I work, we will create a scenario with an actor um, and we will have, um, you know, learners responding um, to an actor who's simulating a certain illness, often something that's kind of rare and exciting. And it's a way for us to not only train people in a way that's very, very interactive, where we do a lot of debriefing and you can get a lot of good takeaways and change practice, but it also identifies a lot of system errors, which is a huge part of, you know, why things can go wrong or, or at least not be ideal in a medical environment. So it's, 
it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. That sounds pretty cool. I just had a, a series of uh, podcasts on artificial intelligence, actually. And one of the biggest benefits that people highlighted is the interaction of artificial intelligence with the medical field and how AIs are interpreting radiographs and helping with diagnoses uh, as a tool. Have you experienced anything like that in your practice? Um, I mean, medicine, it, it can be algorithmic um, to a degree. So it can lend itself to that. Um, you know, it is interesting because we, we have anxieties now about, you know, which jobs are no longer going to be relevant, you know, when AI start to outperform humans. And that's happening in a, in a wide variety of fields. I mean, we think about it with like, say, trucking, for instance, with self-driving vehicles. Um, you know, we're definitely still not there, but it's it's maybe something that's emerging in the next few decades. Um, I do worry for my radiology colleagues because that is an area where I think computers will shortly be able to outperform the human eye. If you can feed enough data to a, a neural network, um, mm -hmm. they can probably get to a point where they're more reliable than people. They, they can look at a million radiographs in a morning. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, in terms of emergency medicine, I do feel a little bit more job security there because, um, <laughs> you know, it's it's um, it's primary care in the sense that we're seeing what we call like undifferentiated pathology. People are coming in just with symptoms and there's a ton of interpretation that goes into it. But you know, there is a lot of sort of yes, no, yes, no answers to help narrow down. I, when I'm teaching my, my medical residents, um, say if we're talking about abdominal pain, which there's a really broad, what we call a differential diagnosis. There's so many things that can cause abdominal pain. So I, I like to play a game called 20 questions with them. And I don't know if you've probably played it before, right? You yes. can only answer yes or no. And, and you try and ask questions where you're going to carve off 50% of the possibilities and just kind of get the, uh, get the pie sliced down very thin and, and get to the answer. Um, so you can see ways in which AI could, could, uh, get involved. Um, you know, I think as a, in any profession, it can make you a little nervous. Um, we'll see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, you know, as they, they were saying that, you know, it's mainly to, to help, right. It's a, it's a tool that helps you look at all the options, but yeah, yeah uh, the more it helps, the less you do, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> the less of us you need to work. And yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. yeah. So, so you're a doctor and a strong advocate for nuclear power. Mm -hmm. Many anti-nuclear people would see this as a contradiction because they believe that all doctors think that radiation is bad for you. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that would be a very ironic position for a doctor to take because if you look at a pie graph, because you know the world is radioactive, we have cosmic rays coming in from above, we have um, naturally occurring radioactive isotopes um, you know, within the uranium decay chain and thorium decay chains. Um, which are constantly exposing us to a certain degree of radioactivity, which is highly variable around the world, right? In Canada, I'd say in where, where we're both speaking from now, it's, it's probably 2.6 millisieverts per year. There's um, a place in the world where it is 100 times greater than that, uh, in Ramsar, Iran, where it's 200. In, in Kerala, India, it's around 50 to 60. So there's really, really big uh, variations in that. But what's interesting in a place like Canada, again, when we're talking about this 2.6 millisieverts, I know the units are tricky to get your head around. But of that, if we, if we put that 2.6 millisieverts in a, in a pie chart, um, and we want to talk about the artificial radiation portion of that pie chart, it's about 15%. And 93% of that, of that chunk that's artificial is from medical uh, diagnostics and, and therapeutics. So you know, on a daily basis, I am, um, you know, exposing patients to radiation and it's very, very useful. It's how, you know, how I diagnose appendicitis, for instance, or a blood clot in the lungs or something like that. So it's, it's really vital. And 
you know, in terms of people's risk perceptions and this uh, this idea about a, like a precautionary principle when it comes to a new technology, um, you know, I think the precautionary principle has really loomed large recently. We have a lot of anxieties about things like artificial intelligence, for instance, about things like genetic engineering, about things like nuclear energy. And when we think about, you know, the risks and benefits, when it accrues personally, right? Like if, if you know, me getting a, a CT scan is going to give a diagnosis, then people are not afraid of radiation. I have parents of little babies demanding I do brain scans on their kids because they've had a little fall and bonk their head, right? Mm -hmm. But when we talk about, okay, like, um, you know, Ontario's 61% um, um, of, of our electricity is produced by nuclear energy. It has an incredible collective health benefits in terms of displacing air pollution from coal or natural gas. In terms of our, you know, our climate situation, people are very hesitant about radiation um, in that circumstance, even though of that kind of 15 percent on that pie chart, radiation, even from, you know, the nuclear accidents accounts for, you know, 0.01 percent of our background. So there's a, a really huge misperception and doctors, unfortunately, um, have played a big role in that. So, you know, you, were, you started off your question saying, you know, isn't that a bit of a contradiction in terms that there's a, you know, a doctor that's for nuclear energy? And it might seem that way because there's so many physician organizations opposed. But I've really, um, you know, had a solid look at the evidence and, and arrived at the conclusion that nuclear energy is vital um, and started this physician group to try and, you know, shift the Overton window a little bit and show that there are experts in the medical field that are, um, that have a f very favorable view of nuclear energy. Now, in, in general, in the populace, nuclear is not a very popular option for all the reasons of the, the bad press and the publicity and pushes on by non-government organizations and environmental groups to, to you know, the, the appeal to nature fallacy. We need to go back to sun and wind and, and growing our own food. Is pro-nuclear a popular opinion amongst doctors or are they more representative of the general populace? I'd say there's a generational divide. So certainly, you know, physicians who grew up um, during the time of the Second World War and the Cuban Missile Crisis or the Ivy Mike bomb tests, um, you know, doctors played a really pivotal role in fighting um, nuclear weapons, particularly atmospheric weapons testing, um, and did really important activism around that. Um, you know, it was a study on the baby teeth of uh, children in the U.S., um, which demonstrated there was strontium, which is a, a an artificially generated uh, radioactive isotope that was appearing in in children's teeth um, that was brought to JFK, and you know from what I'm told was fairly pivotal in in him making the decision to pursue the the partial weapons testing ban. Um, mm -hmm. So doctors, you know, were very involved in that. Um, it's it's interesting because that strontium, like we can, what's what's so interesting about radiation is we can't taste, sense, or smell it. Um, but we have instrumentation that can detect a, the, like a single atom decaying. Just it's we're, we're incredible. So you'll hear about, you know, um, oh, we detected uh, this bump in radioactivity. I mean, the public and, and physicians have a very poor sense of dose and and the, the you know, how relevant it is. Right. So that strontium in those baby teeth, it sounds horrific. I mean, and I sound like I'm, I'm sort of downplaying something that's terrible by saying, listen, I mean, it had no health impacts. I think it was an important tool to to limit the madness of nuclear weapons. Um, but in any case, so doctors have been very involved in that. When I was saying generationally, it's changing, I would say. You know, in the last 10 to 15 years, the whole way in which we understand medicine and medical evidence has switched from um, what we call like a mechanistic basis where it's like, OK, there's this 
receptor um, that you know if this molecule is going to interact with and therefore it should create this result if you can sort of map that out plausibly that used to be what we would construe as medical evidence whereas nowadays we say no 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 there's way too many potential biases and the mechanisms might always work so we're going to use epidemiologic methods to you know to really make sure that this treatment or intervention works so we're going to do large randomized trials that where we take two different groups but we make sure they resemble each other that we're going to be blinded as researchers we're going to not just do this at one center but at many centers around the world and that's the way we're going to you know test our evidence and so in the last 10 or 15 years um you know new medical graduates have been trained in in this methodology um, and in sort of critical appraisal of the literature and so i think there's um, a much greater ability if you actually do look into say the quality of evidence around you know the impacts of chernobyl for instance you'll see there's a variety of studies that were actually sponsored by the green party in europe or by the founder of greenpeace in russia methodologically incredibly flawed and biased and you can compare that to the high quality literature coming out of the un scientific committee on the effects of atomic radiation and, and as a yes. physician who's educated in this you can then make more informed decisions and and i'd find yes most of the younger doctors i talk to um are quite open-minded and especially when they when they actually look at the evidence um they're on side so you know doctors for nuclear energy is a, is a new group we do have members um across the world in the states australia europe um I'll, I'll add the uk on there since brexit happened but um, yes you know we, we we are building up um a membership base that's that's um you know that's worldwide and uh and i hope yeah. it i hope it will make an impact if you read the uh, the reports on the the Chernobyl deaths and you know the, it's it's like night and day. There's two different camps almost, and and you read the ones from Greenpeace, and and they're like, oh, there's been extra deaths in Ukraine, and these people have died young, and all these people have died, but you don't get the control group in the discussion at all. Yes, a lot of people have died after the fall of the Soviet Union, their whole econo economy collapsed, their whole medical system collapsed. There's been stress. <laughs> you need to control for some variables before you actually make conclusions as to what the cause of these deaths are. No, I mean, one study kind of attributed every extra death after Chernobyl to be, well, it has to be related to Chernobyl, right? And as you're saying, the Soviet Union collapsed, the health system went to hell, tuberculosis reared its head again, alcoholism was rampant. There are many, many other factors at play. So that's not the, me the proper methodology to use. And so there's, you know, more precise methodology that, you know, a group of over 100 um, experts in, you know, variety of fields in eight UN agencies and three national governments that came together. And I mean, their results, you know, they're, they're so counterintuitive, um, you know, that, you know, 28 people died as a result of ac acute radiation sickness. You know, a total uh, number of people that died acutely from the accident is around 60. And then there's been a few extra cases of thyroid cancer that have actually caused death. There's been a lot of extra cases of thyroid cancer, but luckily thyroid cancer is, is highly treatable. Ironically, with the same medical isotope, um, you know, iodine-131, that actually was released from the reactor and, and caused these cases in a very narrow segment of the population, namely young children whose thyroids were still you know undergoing active mitosis they were still growing right so um but the numbers are so jarring if you've you know because i think in popular culture we're used to hearing hundreds of thousands millions of deaths and that's not at all reflected you know that the uppermost estimates coming out of these un studies are around four thousand, um, and those are you know they're, they're couching that and saying, well, actually, you know, what we're measuring as we continue to move forward is not getting anywhere near that. That's a very, very 
uh, conservative or sorry, very, very liberal estimate um, of what could happen. And that's again, that's not to that's not to downplay it. That's that's a tragedy. Right. And, and Chernobyl was a terrible accident, but it doesn't meet the criteria of something I would call a catastrophe or a disaster. Like there's, whenever we talk about a nuclear incident, it's it's in those dramatic terms. Um, but, you know, Fukushima, there's maybe one case of someone who may have died as a result of the radiation. He had lung cancer, although that's not a common cancer that's caused by exposure to radiation. He was all, also a smoker and it was more sort of a. Okay, well, let's let's give this guy some um, compensation um, and help his family out more than uh, okay. This is a slam dunk that this was related to the accident. So Fukushima, maybe one person as a result of radiation. Three Mile Island, zero people. I mean Chernobyl. I, I refer to it as the kind of Hindenburg of uh, of nuclear, and it's like, well, yeah. would, would you fly in a, mod, mod, a modern commercial jet uh, based upon, or would you make that decision based upon the Hindenburg? No, I mean it's an entirely different technology and safety culture and, and things have just changed dramatically. Yeah. I, I read a good quote from Aida Ruishalm, who's the author of the Thoughtscapeism blog. It's a great, great resource for anyone who, who wants to look into the details of nuclear in a rational way. And paraphrasing is basically, we need to weigh the risk of nuclear power against the risks of not using nuclear power. Uh, you can't just hold up the risks to like an extremely bright light and list them, because as you say, we can detect every single atom that breaks down and, and try to attribute a probability that this is going to cause cancer. You need to think about what happens if you don't massively increase nuclear, and that looks like a whole lot more fossil fuel and a whole lot more death. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's one of the key problems, and it's something I've had to wrestle with as I've you know. Di- dived into, um, you know, trying to understand energy. And this is something, you know, in terms of my previous activism around refugee health issues or, or things like that, I never thought I would be so obsessed with energy. But in the context of climate change and the idea that we need an energy transition, you know, this is something to, to participate in the debate, you've got to be literate on this. And I'm shocked when I talk to politicians how little they know. But one of the key issues here is that you know, I would say kind of the, world, the world's greatest <laughs> marketing campaign has been around renewable energy, which is, you know, this huge hodgepodge of different sources that in no way resemble each other. Right. You have hydro, which is, you know, a dispatchable source. It's the world's largest source of zero carbon energy. Um, you know, that's lumped in with biomass burning. Right. Things like corn ethanol, which is an ecological catastrophe or, you know, the wood pellets that provide the majority of the EU's renewable energy. And a lot of that is, you know, forests that are logged in Siberia and in North America, pelleted, turns into pellets in big factories, shipped in huge uh, bunker tankers over to, you know, the UK, for instance, to their Drax. You know, it's this huge, I think, three or four gigawatt plant that used to burn coal. Now it's a green plant because it burns forests. I mean, that's renewable. (laughs) And then and then you have wind and solar, which are renewable as well in terms of you know, harnessing renewable flows of energy like photons and, and, and you know, gusts of wind. Um, but the, you know, the materials with which they're made, like a 500 um, ton steel wind turbine, that, that's not made of renewable substances. But more broadly, um, you know, they're, they're, they're very much different. And I'd say the key thing is in this intermittency dispatchability issue. So listen, I mean, if, if I could believe the hype, that wind and solar were capable of deep decarbonization, that we didn't need to mine the world in, in, in order to you know, build enough of them and mine it even further to build enough battery capacity. And if batteries could actually you know, last for months on end to you know, balance out our grid, 
you know, if it was all part of that sort of fantastical vision that most people accept without diving into understanding it, then yeah, I mean, I'd rather have a single solar panel on my roof or a little nice wind turbine that's not too tall, right? I don't want a really big yeah. one. Um, <laughs> sure. But I mean, when you look into it, you realize that these tools are not capable of getting to z net zero or getting to deep decarbonization because they require backup. And we're seeing in Texas right now, I mean, this polar vortex, um, you know, it's it's affected every energy source, but imagine and, and and people are you know and natural gas has been impacted a lot and I'm, I'm no friend of natural gas but if you look at the production profiles of what's you know tried to fill the gap natural gas has shot up like this you know wind has gone down a bit um but you think if there wasn't that natural gas there it would be what batteries and for this week of you know frigid weather and people's homes being heated by electricity mostly um you know what would be how long would those batteries last the answer is you know, even with an enormous investment, hours to maybe 24 hours, and then what's going to charge them after that? I mean, it's it's still you know blizzards and freezing cold, and, and, and your 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 solar and wind are so low re, uh, availability that you have to massively overbuild your capacity uh, in order to have enough uh, excess to charge your batteries and last through the downtime. Because you know, 30 percent is the best you're going to get out of wind, and in the northern hemisphere, you're looking at you know. 15, 12% for solar. Yeah, that's what we get here. And I think, you know, people, they, they pick up this device and they think, wow, that battery is so great. It works so well. And we make these kind of inferences off of like, well, I have a friend who's got an off-grid house and it works, but this doesn't work more broadly. I mean, so that brings us back to the point that, you know, all energy and energy sources have, have trade-offs and costs. Nuclear has been so maligned, I think, because, you know, this dual use technology, the incredible power of the atom, which has been used for evil in terms of weapons and for good in terms of energy. Um, but the more you look at nuclear, it's, you know, what's what are described as like the downsides you actually start to see is, wow, this is actually really, really, you know, not it, it's actually a strong side. So, for instance, in the waste stream. You know, the uh, the fuel has uh, a density which is, you know, one to three million times more than even a very energy dense fuel like fossil fuels, um, such that the amount of waste created is, is, is very small. So in Canada, all of the waste produced by our, our fleet of Canada reactors, um, that's around 20 over, you know, over the years, um, would fit in a single hockey rink um, piled up uh, 32 feet high. So less less high than a telephone pole. Right. So the actual you hear about, you know, ton like and, and I'm enumerate as well, to a certain degree, big numbers, kind of I, my eyes glaze over, um, you know, uranium is the densest naturally occurring element on the periodic table. So you hear about the tonnage and it sounds like a lot, but the volume is actually tiny um, and it's all been contained nuclear waste in the history of civilian nuclear waste. There's not been a single death from storing nuclear waste. And you compare that to things like fossil fuels, where we have. You know, eight and they're constantly revising this upwards, but eight million plus people dying every year as a result of air pollution from fossil and combustion. Mm -hmm. And that's just deaths. Right. We know that, you know, if you grew up in a, even a city like L.A., but, you know, Delhi, for instance, kids lungs are permanently scarred um, by being exposed to air pollution. You know, if we do pulmonary function tests, their pulmonary wow. function is maybe 50 percent of, of what it would be in a child that didn't grow up in that environment. So the, the health burden um, of the other waste streams, which are not contained, which are dumped into the atmosphere or into, you know, you know, like a coal ash that's just put in these sort of like waste ponds and occasionally breaks out spewing heavy metals everywhere. It's it's um, 
Yeah, it's it's actually a strength of nuclear energy. The, the double standards are, are are deafening. You go out on the internet and you say, you know, I'm I'm for nuclear power. I think this is important that we build new nuclear power and we save our existing uh, nuclear. And they say, well, what about Chernobyl and Fukushima? We can never do this again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know, Fukushima, nobody died from the <laughs> from the from the accident. It was the the evacuation killed hundreds of people. Yeah. But now we've We've looked at it and we said, well, look, the, the radiation that was released wasn't enough to kill anybody. In fact, the, the current Fukushima exclusion zone is, is between 25 and 50 millisieverts per year, which is less than the background in some natural areas. You know, living there, there's no measurable increase in cancer risk at that dose. There's no measurable increase, but they've evacuated. I mean, if you compare that to fossil fuels, where you can you can measure, say, the the particulate matter, the PM two point five, the two point five micron particle soot concentration in the air in some of these cities, and we know that for every ten micrograms per cubic meter, the cardiopulmonary cardiopulmonary mortality increases by ten percent. Yeah, and. More than half the cities in the world have more than 10 micrograms per cubic meter from fossil fuels. Yeah. So if policy was rational, we would be evacuating every city. Yeah, absolutely. And living in Fukushima. And I mean, we would be doing what we did in Ontario, which was um, bringing a bunch of candy reactors online to get rid of... Ontario used to be a filthy place. I mean, Toronto used to be the big smoke. I used to live in Nova Scotia and my grandparents came here and I would... I remember the sky being kind of pink at night because of all the particulate in the air. Um, you know, 54 smog days a year in 2004 when we began this coal phase out. Had some beautiful sunsets, though. Beautiful sunsets, yeah. But the, the coal phase out <laughs> in Ontario, which has been called the greatest greenhouse gas emissions reduction in North America, was powered by nuclear. And even like even the government sources don't mention this. Certainly the, uh, the environmental NGOs, they don't mention it. But 90% of the power required to phase out coal in Ontario came from nuclear. It's such a success story. It, yeah, and I mean, and you know, in terms of the medical associations, like the Ontario Medical Association, the Toronto Public Health Unit, um, they did studies and estimates on you know the number of lives saved, the savings to the healthcare system, and it's huge. You know, so literally, nuclear in Ontario has saved thousands and thousands of lives, and that's just from the coal phase out. Things like you know the Pickering plant, the Darlington plant, these were built instead of coal plants. You know, they were going to build a coal plant at Pickering and they said, you know, let's try this nuclear thing out. We've had some great success at Douglas Point. Let's let's try this out. And so, you know, they built a four gigawatt plant there instead of a four gigawatt coal plant. And, you know, four gigawatts is, a, is an absolutely enormous amount of power. That's enough to power the, the whole city of Toronto. Hmm. And if you think about, you know, if that since the 1970s that, you know, there'd been a coal plant there, you know, a fairly densely populated area. You know, and, and you and you actually trace back, you know, the the avoided mortality as a result of having built a nuclear station there instead of a coal station. I mean, it's wild. It's truly wild. And so, as as a doctor, as a physician, I'm saying, you know, <laughs> let's uh, let's let's pay attention here. There's a there's yeah, a yeah. incredibly rational argument for nuclear energy in terms of health. Yeah, I mean, people don't realize that actually by replacing coal plants with nuclear plants, we've decreased. The amount of radioactivity that's being spread around in the world. Yeah. Because coal plants emit 100 times more radioactivity into the atmosphere than nuclear plants are allowed to release, just from the ash of the radioactive stuff in, in the fuel. So we've actually decreased radioactivity by building nuclear. Yeah. No, there's, there's a particularly um, high content of uranium and thorium in some of the coal that's mined in Saskatchewan. 
and there was a coal plant there and they were um, they were actually looking at uh, mining the coal ash to get uranium and thorium out of it um, but they got um, they, they ended up getting a, what do you call it a cold shoulder they, they ended up getting um, hesitant about it because you know the amount of, of radioactive particulate in the in the fly ash and in, in this uh, it was was basically like on the level of fallout you know yeah. and so they were like uh oh like if if this story gets spun the wrong way this could look really bad for us and of course again the health impacts from from coal ash from flash is not related to the radiation it's related to precisely what you're saying that particulate matter 2.5 the the heavy metals the mercury the arsenic etc and these are you know these are the forever poisons right they never break down <laughs> yeah i mean people say you know as if it's a bad thing nuclear waste is toxic for hundreds of thousands of years but how does this make it worse than toxic heavy metals from other manufacturing streams that are toxic forever? And because you've got orders of magnitude less than them and they disappear over time. Mm -hmm. No, and I mean, and the thing is the, the world is radioactive. Um, you know, one of the more common radioactive isotopes um, that we're exposed to is um, potassium 40. Um, and this is ubiquitous. I mean, it's one ten thousandth of every potassium atom in your body is radioactive. Um, it actually releases a fairly high energy beta decay. Um, and this is, you know, one of these internal emitters, right? Potassium is the predominant intracellular uh, cation. So in every single cell in your body, you're, you've got tons of potassium inside. Um, and it's constantly decaying right next to our DNA, right next to all these important cell structures. And um, we don't get overly concerned about that. Um, you know, and we eat bananas and, and potatoes. And I know it sounds silly, but there's, there's a way of kind of... Um, of demystifying natural radioactivity by talking about the banana equivalent dose because potassium 40 is it's a significant natural source of radiation in our environment um so yeah it's 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 an interesting field yeah i mean a lot of these um predictions of hundreds of thousands or millions of deaths say from chernobyl are based on this linear no threshold uh medical theory that you know, there's no threshold for cancer from radiation. Every potential breakdown uh, has a linear uh, cumulative effect on your odds of getting cancer. So every time an atom breaks down, it, you're rolling the dice and you might get cancer. And people have been looking at that and saying, well, it looks like, you know, there's no measurable effect below a certain level. So we shouldn't be calculating, you know, taking the one uh, breakdown and multiplying it by the population of the world because everyone gets one breakdown from Chernobyl every day. <laughs> you multiply it by 7 billion. And, <laughs> and it, it harkens back a little bit to what I was saying before in terms of a mechanistic model um, <clears throat> versus a kind of epidemiologic evidence, right? So yes, there is a mechanism for a gamma ray to you know move through your body and interact with DNA or create um, you know, an oxidation event that then cre creates a break in a DNA strand. So the mechanism is there. Um, DNA, our understanding of DNA has, has changed drastically since the 50s. Um, and we now know that every, you know, every cell in the body is undergoing thousands and thousands of single strand DNA breaks and, you know, probably around 100 double stranded DNA breaks every single day. There's robust repair mechanisms, but the, the greatest stress on our DNA is, is oxidative damage, and that's from the oxygen that we breathe, right? And so there's, there's been some studies on this which show that, um, you know, for every thousand single-stranded DNA breaks, um, you know, a thousand are caused by uh, oxidative stress just from free radicals, from being an aerobic 
organism and one might be caused by background radiation, right? So, you know, the, I hope that helps to sort of put it into perspective for people. But, you know, in, in, in medicine, in, in the field of toxicology, we say, you know, this, this is an old uh, adage that goes back into kind of the, probably the 1500s, which was that the dose makes the poison. Anything mm -hmm. can be poisonous and there's a threshold dose. Um, but with things like radiation, there's so many beneficial um, elements and there's such a you know, fairly high dose that's coming at us naturally, particularly when, it, again, you look around the world at places like Kerala, India or Ramsar, Iran, or um, I believe it's in Wales. There's a, a you know, higher background radiation dose and there's not any corresponding uptick in the background rate of cancers. So um, radiation is a very weak carcinogen. We administer absolutely incredible doses you know, in terms of, you know, treating leukemia, for instance, to knock off the bone marrow, for instance, um, you know, many, many um, levels higher than what a universally fatal dose would be, but we give it in what we call fractions. So every week you'll come back and you'll get a very high dose, maybe localized to a certain body part. Um, and we do see secondary cancers arise as a result of that, particularly if we're treating like childhood leukemias. Um, so I'm not trying to say it, it, it doesn't happen, but it's, it's a weak, weak carcinogen. And we need to understand it in that light. And look at all of the, the benefits that come with it and understand that even a nuclear accident is a source of a low dose um, to the surrounding, not, not saying to the first responders per se, um, but to the surrounding populations, it's a low dose. Yeah, it, it's, it doesn't compare with, as you say, oxygen. Yeah, and then, and then the greatest harm um, that we've seen in relation to, to these nuclear accidents is the panic, right? Is these rushed evacuations, is these prolonged evacuations which result in dislocation from your home, your town, mm -hmm. you know, um, which results in a lot of stigma. Um, and unfortunately, that's really played into a lot by these um, anti-nuclear medical uh, folks. So, you know, most famously, Helen Caldicott, um, who makes outlandish claims, right? She says, you know, more people um, have died or will die from Chernobyl than from the Black Plague, which killed 100 million people, by, by the way. You know, that there's, <laughs> there's glowing radioactive um, wild boars running around in Germany. Like, she's, she has no shame in terms of things she says, and she, I, I'm not aware of her retracting any of these claims when met with actual evidence. Um, but, you know, in the aftermath, I remember watching some interviews with her at the time of Fukushima when she was getting a lot of media play, and, I mean, she was just drumming up the fear and that has real oh, health yeah. consequences. That has real health. It panics people. It, it contributes to the stigma, the sense of, you know, oh, because I was exposed to radiation, I'm going to, you know, my children's children's children are going to be impacted. You know, and, and in Japan, after the atomic bombings, there was a whole sort of class of survivors. And there was, you know, people were reluctant to marry their kids to kids of people's, you know, whose parents had been exposed. There's there's a lot of stigma that goes wow. along with it. So um, I think it's... Um, I think that these people need to be held account for the fear mongering that they're doing because it has it has a real impact. Yeah, I mean, you could say that it's killed more people than nuclear. <laughs> than the accidents, yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, it's an uphill battle. Um, it, you know, right now it, at times it feels very hopeless, but I think it's a it's a really important one. And and really, in terms of climate change, I think that. Uh, nuclear energy, it's not the only part of the solution. Certainly other dispatchable renewables like hydro have an important role to play, but I think it needs to be the keystone, the, the kind of backbone of our decarbonization response. Um, and, you know, you raise a really important point, which is this, this issue of uh, advanced nuclear. And certainly there's rooms for improvement in the technology. Nuclear is not, however, like software, like, you know, Silicon Valley 
app or Uber or something like that. Um, development uh, takes time, right? I, I think about nuclear as kind of, um, you know, a transport truck versus a sports car. Um, to get a, a nuclear program going where you can build these mega projects on time and on budget requires a lot of uh, a dedication of resources and time and building a skilled workforce. And as you start to do that, you can build you know, these projects on budget, on time and start rapidly decarbonizing as we did in Ontario, as France did, as Sweden did. And that generally involved picking a design, picking a winner, um, standardizing it, developing that supply chain and expertise and constructing it. And right now it's, you know, we have great technology. Kandu is an amazing reactor. Um, you know, it's it, we don't need to enrich uranium for it. Um, we don't need a heavy forging industry. Um, it's been built on price, on budget and on time in China, Romania, Korea. Um, it's a, particularly applicable to developing countries because, again, you don't need that heavy forging, which is only done in a few countries in the world now. I mean, even the U.S. gave up on their heavy forging. Just Japan does it. Um, so, you know, there's there's this question, though, about, well, you know, but isn't that like 1950s, 60s, 70s technology? That That doesn't make sense. It's kind of like saying, isn't the car like, a, you know, a 19th century technology? It's not that like the components within the Kanda reactor are not changing or improving or the pressure tubes aren't getting better, this, that and the other. But, you know, the issue is that the only politically safe reactor is something that doesn't yet exist, that hasn't run into any real world problems. And, you know, Canada is on track to start maybe building some new nuclear. Um, but, you know, a, a really strong industry, like, say, the Russians who have, you know, really invested in this, they're building new reactors all the time. They've got a sort of advanced program and a small modular reactor program, but it's maybe 5% or 10% of their overall program. And that makes sense. Once you have a really healthy industry, you're good at building stuff, you've got an enormous degree of expertise, then you, you put some of that into R&D. But I think that we've got it really backwards in terms of saying we're just going to go all in on new designs, first of a kind. We know that those are always, well, almost always over budget and over time. And I'm really worried that we're taking the wrong approach and we're on the back foot. We're responding only to criticisms and we're not being bold and assertive in terms of, hey, we have a great technology here. It's accomplished amazing things. We should build on that legacy. Yes, I think we should have an, a new candy reactor in every province. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's interesting because in Canada, I agree with you. In Canada, in terms of our electricity, you know, BC is very clean because they have so much hydro. Quebec, very clean. They have so much hydro. But, but I think we need to start off by decarbonizing Alberta, Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia. I mean, the carbon intensity in Alberta is uh, 10 times greater than that in Ontario. Um, it's it's crazy, the difference. Um, and we were going to build a couple Candus in Alberta back uh, in the early 2000s. Um, and unfortunately, that fell through. But absolutely, we can take the model that we did in Ontario and we can take that to high emitting provinces and we can get them off coal. And, and that's the only thing that's worked so far. You know, wind and solar have not done that. Unfortunately, as you're saying, the capacity factor of wind is very low. Wind in Ontario produces completely out of phase with demand. So when it's very cold or wet, very hot, the wind doesn't blow. That's when we need the electricity. So we get a, a surplus of wind in the in the spring and fall. We can't use it. We give it away for free to the states or we just shut the wind turbines down. Um, and uh, unfortunately, that's where we've put our investment in the last you know 10 or 15 years. And rather oh, than least. refurbishing the Pickering station, which, again, provides enough power for the whole city of Toronto, um, we've put at least 30, 40 billion into wind and solar, which doesn't add much. You know, maybe they've dropped our carbon intensity by a few grams per kilowatt hour, but 
you know, if we put that money into refurbing Pickering, we have it for another 30 years. And as it stands right now in 2024 and four years, we're going to lose that station. It's going to be replaced by gas. We're going to take a huge step backwards. Is there a climate emergency or not, people? You know, I've uh, I've listened to some of the episodes of your decouple podcast. It's very well put together and lots of lots of great guests. It's fun to, to see some of the arguments you guys are having. I have to go invite some of your guests onto my podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your podcast. Tell our listeners a bit about it. How long have you been doing it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so it's uh, it's called the decouple podcast. It's a podcast about. Um, the technologies that can decouple human well-being from its environmental impacts and the politics that can make that possible. And so basically, you know, that's that's wrestling with this idea of the need to get another two, three billion people out of out of extreme poverty, um, that people have a right to um, to, yeah, to have energy, to have vaccines, to have, um, you know, a stove to cook on rather than a, a fire that's, you know, in, in household fire that's, you know, causing tons of indoor air pollution and, and women have the right to go and get educated and control their fertility and that these things are good for the planet, that humans thriving is ultimately good environmentally. Um, you know, there's a lot of anxiety about um, population and, and there's been some horrible things that have come out of the environmental movement that have led to forced sterilization in India and, and these sort of campaigns. Um, but, you know, fertility rates drop off when people are living a good quality of life. And that's that's the route I think we need to strive for. So that's kind of that, that idea of decoupling. Um, you know, in terms of um, when it started, it began in May, so shortly after um, COVID began. Um, and it's just been, a, I've had a great year. And I've developed a, you know, really great listener base and, and relationships around the world before we went on, on air here. Uh, we were talking about, you know, just where our listeners are coming from. And, yeah, I've got listeners in over 80 countries now. Um, it's, it's really cool to see. It's really exciting. Yeah. I heard you, um, I was reading, listening to one of your podcasts. You were discussing eco-modernism on your podcast. And you, you know, you sound like an eco-modernist. Your policies and your, your politics are very eco-modernist. But you said you take issue with some of the aspects of the eco-modernist viewpoint. Can you maybe express a little bit about that? For sure, yeah. I mean, so eco-modernism, for your listeners that aren't familiar with it, um, is a movement that was kind of, um, I'd say Stuart Brandt was probably the original sort of thought leader in this. And I mean, that's where I borrow this concept of decoupling from, you know, that you can use technologies like nuclear, which are incredibly energy dense, have, you know, a tiny fraction of the mining that's required, release no air pollution, no CO2. And that these can allow, you know, energy, which we need for hospitals, for vaccines, for water treatment, for just lights, all the things we take for granted, um, but have a very minimal environmental impact. So that that comes out of eco-modernism. Eco-modernism as a movement is largely coming out of thinkers in the U.S. And so for me, the reason I'm not fully comfortable with it and struggle is sort of labeling myself as such is that, um, you know, it, it lacks a little bit of uh, imagination, I think, around, well, how do we actually deploy these technologies, right? Um, you know, a market-based system is based on, you know, that, that um, imperative of generating profit for shareholders. It's not necessarily set around, okay, we have a social goal here or an environmental goal. And so that requires some degree of market intervention or heavens say like economic planning. And so I think that's probably my, my biggest uh, point of di divergence. Um, a really influential thinker for me and one of my recent guests, Charles Mann, wrote a book called The Wizard and the Prophet. And it really sketches out these archetypes of sort of the like techno fix um, cornucopian versus the sort of environmentalist kind of degrowther 
Um, and and it's very interesting to kind of understand the two sort of sides of, of the argument when it comes to environmentalism. These positions are almost as entrenched as left and right in the in the kind of human political imagination. Um, and it is interesting, though. I mean, I found myself challenged by him at times because I tend to be on that sort of more technofix wizard side now, although I wasn't always. Um, but there are elements. I mean, it's it's funny that new tribe of the eco modernist or the wizard or the technofix guy. Sometimes we, um, the members of that tribe, tend to sort of poo poo things like energy conservation and things like that. And and there are elements, there are areas for cooperation. You know, unfortunately, that sort of environmentalist side. I mean, the environmental movement is very caught up in in um, some anti-human ideas, right? I mean, it's environmentalism, not humanism. Um, and certainly it's important to, to emphasize the environment. It's what nurtures us as humans. But um, there's been a lot of sort of anti-human, anti-sort of population hysteria, which has led to really horrific things, particularly for poor and racialized people around the world. So that's a long-winded answer. I'm good at those, I guess. No, but no, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Thanks for your opinion. So it looks like we're, we're drawn to the end of our time slot here. And you, you seem like a very busy man with all of your different hats. So I got one last question for you. What do you like to do in your spare time? Oh, goodness me. Um, and it's funny what you think of as your spare time. I have a like just a beautiful <laughs> two-year-old boy. And uh, yeah, I just like take, I mean, it's really limited right now. You can't sort of take him to the museum or, or, or here and there, but... Um, he's really into cars, and so I tend to pop the hood on my car and show him all the. His newest word is air intake manifold, um, <laughs> and we'll, nice. we'll go by the auto garage and kind of look through the window, and he'll look at the cars up on jacks. And um, anyway, so I think just spending time with my son would be, uh, you know, that's that's my uh, my jam in my spare time. Very good. Well, thanks very much, Chris Kiefer, for joining me on the Rational View. I really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for thanks for being out there. It's great to be part of a broader sort of ecosystem of, of podcasts. So thanks for doing what you do and thanks for having me on. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view.